all oil and gas activity, as well as mining, dumping, and bottom trawling. 15. An unprecedented conservation effort returned the Mexican gray wolf from the brink of extinction, giving it a new home in a reserve with other species endemic to its former territories, such as prairie dogs, bison, and longhorn sheep. That's from Mexico News Daily. 16. China's tree stock rose by 4.56 billion meters? Meters to the third, so not square. Okay, M3. Uh, my apologies. Um, between 2000, that's a lot. Between 2005 and 2018, deserts are shrinking by 2,400 square kilometers a year, and forests now account for 22% of land area. That's from SCMP. 17, the U.S. Senate passed its most sweeping conservation legislation in a decade, protecting 1.3 million acres and withdrawing 370,000 acres from land available to mining companies. That's from the LA Times. Ugh. Next, global health. Healthcare is vital to all of us some of the time, but public health is vital to all of us all of the time. That's Charles Everett Coop, of all people, said that. Good to know. 18, Algeria and Argentina officially eliminated malaria this year, and the WHO said that in the last eight years, malaria infections in Cambodia, China, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, and Vietnam dropped by 76%, and deaths fell by 95%. India also reported a huge reduction in malaria, with 2.6 million fewer cases in 2018 than in 2017. That's from Nature, uh, the publication, Nature. 19. The Global Burden of Disease Report said that between 1990 and 2017, the number of kids and teenagers dying around the world decreased by more than half, from 13.77 million to 6.64 million that's from cnn 20 and again i'm reading the article from future crunch who has it's been outsourced from other articles so wanting just to put that caveat on there 20 remember bird flu the disease that was going to be the next global pandemic don't worry sparrow it's okay there hasn't been a single h5n1 human infection since february 2017 that's from stat stat 21. According to the United Nations, global HIV-related deaths have fallen to 770,000, a third lower than in 2010, when 1.2 million deaths were recorded. That's from Deutsche Welle. Well, maybe. W-E-L-L-E. 22. Senegal became the first African country to begin providing free treatment for women with breast or cervical cancer, the leading cause of cancer deaths. And Mali announced it would begin providing free health care for pregnant women and children under five. That's from The Guardian. 23. In the biggest breakthrough for cystic fibrosis in decades, a new drug that targets the genetic roots of the disease was approved by the FDA. That's from The Washington Post. 24. The UN released its latest figures on pneumonia, showing that the number of children dying from the ultimate di disease of poverty has decreased from 6,410 per day in 1990 to 2,216 per day in 2017. And that's from OWID. 25. The Philippines passed a Universal Health Care Act, enlisting all of its 107 million citizens to health insurance and medical treatment. And Malaysia started providing free health care insurance for the country's poorest 40%, providing coverage against 36 critical illnesses. 26. 
The CDC announced that cigarette smoking among U.S. adults has reached an all-time low of 13.7%, a decline of two-thirds in the last 50 years. And in the U.K., the number of cigarettes being smoked fell by nearly a quarter between 2011 and 2018. That's from Cancer UK. 27. Russian officials reported that alcohol consumption has decreased by 43% since 2003 as a result average life expectancy in 2018 reached its highest level ever. And that's from BBC. 28. The AIHW said that more people are surviving cancer in Australia than ever before. Since 1989, the mortality rate has dropped by 32% for men and by 21% for women. 29. Between 1990 and 2019, cancer mortality rates fell by 18% in Argentina, 26% in Chile, 14% in Colombia, 17% in Mexico, and 13% in Venezuela, corresponding to almost half a million avoided deaths. That's from the International Journal of Cancer. 30. Malawi eliminated the world's most common infectious eye disease, trachoma, the second African country to do so after Ghana. In 2014, more than 8 million people were at risk. Today, that number is zero. That's from Hippocratic Post. 31. A new vaccine for typhoid reduced cases by more than 80% in trials and is now being used to immunize 9 million children in Pakistan. That's from BBC. 32. Stroke, stroke rates for U.S. adults over the age of 65 have decreased by one-third each decade for the last 30 years. New diabetes cases have declined by 35% since 2009, the longest decline since the government started tracking the statistic, and under the Affordable Care Act, nearly 2 million diabetics have now received access to health insurance. 33. In Rwanda, 95% of babies currently receive vaccinations for rubella, measles, and polio, and it's also on track to be the first country to eliminate cervical cancer. And that's from CNN. 34. Heart disease rates in the UK are on the decline. It's still the leading cause of mortality, but deaths have decreased by almost half since 2005. That's from Telegraph. 35. Between 2000 and 2018, the global incidence of measles fell by two-thirds, and more than 23 million lives were saved by the measles vaccine. I don't know if there's any anti-vaxxers who listen to the show. Maybe uh, it's a good thing to get vaccinated and vaccinate your kiddos if you have them. AC, that's from ACS. Next, 36. A new Ebola vaccine was cleared for distribution in 2019 and is working miracles, reducing mortality rates from 70% to as low as 6%. That's from Boston University. 37. The WHO revealed that the average decline in the... In, Incidence of tuberculosis, the leading infectious disease, excuse me, the WHO revealed that the average decline in the incidence of tuberculosis, the leading infectious cause of death worldwide, has been 1.6 every year between 2000 and 2018, and in August, a new cure for the deadly strain of TB was approved, clearing the path for global distribution. That's from the New York Times. 38. Type 3 polio officially became the second species of polio virus to be eliminated in 2019. Only type 1 now remains, and only in Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's from STAT, S-T-A-T. And I think this will be the last uh, category I'll, I'll read for this show, Living Standards. And it's a quote from Anne Frank. No one has ever become poor by giving. 39. 
New research showed that the proportion of people in extreme poverty around the world fell from 36% in 1990 to 8.6 in 2018. Absolute numbers were down from 1.9 billion in 1990 to 610 million in 2018, and that's from ODI. And I thought this was interesting because, especially here in San Francisco, where the wealth disparity is so huge, we see that there are there are billionaires and then there are folks here without housing, and I and also just recognizing how the top percent keeps on you know the rich get richer and the poor get poor. However. This research tends to show that uh, least extreme poverty is. I mean, no one should be no one should be living in extreme poverty, though. Is the thing. Um, however, yes, it's good that the numbers at least are going down. Forty, the biggest global story you didn't hear about this year, and I'm, they're making an assumption here. Maybe you heard about it. Uh, the biggest global story you didn't hear about this year was the successful conclusion of India's extraordinary sanitation drive. In the last five years, 90 million toilets have been built. 93% of, of households uh, now have access, and 500 million people have stopped defecating in the open. That's from the Economic Times. 41. The second biggest story was the Save the Children. Interesting. Um, save the Children. Perhaps you're, you're going down the street, and there are some folks who like ask to donate, and it's I've heard not so good things about the organization. And Anyway... However, I'm going to share this story, and then we can all, you know, do some research, question it. Uh, 2019 Global Childhood Report showing that in the last 20 years, children's lives have improved in 173 out of 176 countries compared to 2000. Today, there are 4.4 million fewer child deaths per year, 49 million fewer stunted children, 130 million more children in school, 94 million fewer child laborers, 11 million fewer girls forced into marriage or married early, 3 million fewer teen births per year, 12,000 fewer child homicides per year. Naturally, this was front page news everywhere. 42, China now has equal numbers of girls and boys in primary and high school, and more than half of university students are women, up from less than a quarter in 1978, and that's from Xinhua, and that's X-I-N-H-U-A. Next, 43, 30,000 children in Cambodia have been rescued from hard labor in the past five years and 180,000 prevented from being child workers. That's from Phnom Penh Post, and that's P-H-N-O-M. Next word is P-E-N-H, Post. 44. According to the World Bank, India halved its poverty rate in the past 30 years, increased life expectancy at birth by 11.6 years, increased the average number of schooling years by three to five years, and increased per capita incomes by a factor of 250. And then they say 45 Western liberal democracies are not suffering from a loneliness epidemic. I, I still feel like we are. However, let's continue reading. Adolescents in the United States are not more likely to report feeling lonely than adolescents from a couple of decades ago. Other, excuse me, older adults do not report higher loneliness than older adults in the past. And surveys coming from Germany, England, and Sweden point in the same direction. That's from OWID. 46. Since the beginning of the century, the number of houses with adequate sanitation, living area, and reliable construction doubled in sub-Saharan Africa from 11% to 23%. That's from Nature. 48. Officials in Nepal reported that 8.8 .8 million people have gained access to electricity since 2010 and that the country is on track for universal access by 2022. That's from the Kathmandu Post. 47. Nepal was also declared an open defecation-free country in 2019, 
Eight years ago, 9 million people did not have access to clean sanitation facilities. That's from Rising Nepal. 49. Poverty in the United States reached its lowest rate since 2007, with 1.4 million people living in poverty in a single leaving poverty. Excuse me, leaving poverty in a single year, and poverty in Canada reached the lowest level ever recorded, 9.5 percent, down from 15.6 percent in 2006. Again, we have enough resources to house and feed and provide healthcare for everyone. So, again, yes, glad these numbers are going down, and also not far enough. Uh, I don't mean to rain on this parade. However, just recognizing that a lot of the times the, these good news in quotation marks is that maybe like bad things are getting a little bit less bad. Maybe fewer people are being affected negatively. Okay. And then, all right. Okay. Number 50. And then, okay, I'll finish this category. UNESCO said that 19 African countries reached gender parity, equal numbers of boys and girls in primary education in the past decade. That's from Brookings. Also, I'm going to just throw out there that uh, there's non-binary folks and folks who, yeah, it should go beyond that. But okay, uh, that's going to be my statement. 51, a new report on the social performance of 149 countries in the last five years uh, using indicators like nutrition, shelter, safety, education, health, rights, and inclusiveness said that only four countries have regressed overall since 2014. That's from the first post. And then the next up, the section, which we will start on next week, is peace, safety, and human rights. And the quote from Jean Dominique is, you cannot kill the truth. You cannot kill justice. You cannot kill what we are fighting for. I think that's pretty awesome. All right, before I forget, I did want to get to a post I read recently. I learned some things. Oh, hi. And it's on Twitter. That's kind of where I spend these days. Not you can, you know. It has its issues, certainly. However, I find a lot of news I wouldn't find otherwise on Twitter. If you want to follow me on there, by all means, please do. I don't have that many followers in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you can do so. I'm at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. I share a lot of the information that uh, I share on the show here. Ooh. And I'm also just going to share this briefly, a headline from Mission Local, which you can find at missionlocal.org. It's a local newspaper. Breaking, anchor brewery workers have approved their first union contract by a gaudy 49 to 3 vote. That's pretty cool. Okay. And... Oof. Bad news, because uh, I couldn't... Because just reading, you know, 51, 52 good stories, got to read a bad one now. Uh, not intentional, but got to share this. This is from uh, Lycan Jordal, at L-A-I-K-E-N-J-O-R-D-A-H-L video. Border wall construction is imminent through Arizona's spectacular San Pedro River. Dozens of cottonwoods are flagged for removal. Border Patrol says they will break ground in the next two weeks. Everyone should see the sacred place before it's too late. It's another, I mean, the, the idea of the border, which is fake and man-made, is like fucked up as is. And then when you like provide... These security forces who cause harm under the, the they pretend that they're like you know security they're protecting people but in in fact they're actually causing harm they're separating families they're violent and they're also destroying the environment at the same time it's awful okay ugh so I wanted to share that and uh, the story I wanted to get to uh, you just. Hold on one moment. I don't know why holding on. I can also, you know, I'm doing this in my own. 
my own uh, my own speed here. So also I mentioning before about folks who are showing up um, outside the Indian consulate. There are folks in New York City yesterday who also did this. And if you follow me on Twitter, I've reshared these articles. You can learn more about the situation of what's happening in India. Also, J.K. Rowling uh, is a turf. Uh, many folks have been calling this out for ages, and then she just kind of went full on supporting this transphobe who got fired in England because she was like harassing, this woman was like harassing her trans coworker and she rightfully got fired. And then JK Rowling was like, oh, nah, I'm a turf. She didn't say that, but that's kind of her thing. So folks have been dragging her in as rightfully they should. Um, there's also, um, so in India, there's a protest. It's there, they've moved forward with anti-Muslim legislation and there are folks happen, you know, who are protesting in India and all over the world. And in Pune, it's P-U-N-E. There's a lot, like hundreds and hundreds of folks protesting. So I wanted to share that. Um, uh, another point is that uh, I'm gonna make. I'm just gonna read a few more things. Is that having good things to not necessarily argue about, but debate about. If people are upset about the idea of everyone having health care, which I don't know why you would be, but some folks do. Uh, it's from Adam W. Gaffney at A. W. Gaffney. Twitter, when I asked, how will you pay for Medicare for all, the retort might be, how will you pay for $6 trillion in healthcare costs that we'll have a decade from now under current law? Again, very, um, yeah, a good point to make. Also, I'm, I was initially going back to my Twitter to read one thing and then in the show, but then there's so many other pieces that I'd like to share. Next is from Maddie Rose, which you can follow. You can follow Maddie at U-L-I-V-E. Oh, you live in a society with the letter U. Uh, and Maddie says, intersex is as common as being a redhead, but you don't see people out here claiming there's only two hair colors and the rest are disorders and don't count. So again, going after that, the false idea that, <sighs> that there are only two, two genders. Okay, next, it's going down. You can follow at IGD underscore news. Direct action gets the goods from Indian Country Today. Breaking, and this was yesterday, uh, the 30-meter telescope will not be built atop Mauna Kea at this time. Hawaii Governor David IGE announced in an internal memo this morning that law enforcement personnel will be leaving the site. Awesome. Uh, I've, again, it's the positive news story because something negative was going to happen and folks showed up and prevented it from happening. And also PBS NewsHour, police have detained more than 1,200 protesters in some of India's biggest cities Thursday after they defied bans on assembly uh, imposed to stop widespread demonstrations against a new citizenship law that opponents say threatens the country's secular democracy. And again, if you're in the Bay Area and want to support tomorrow from 10 to 12 at the Indian consulate, on Arguello, uh, they're having a, a rally, so folks, please come through if you're able. And I'm going to continue moving down. I'm trying to get to, uh, not trying, I am going to get to it. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, SF Chronicle, uh, racial disparities for BART proof of payment citations haven't changed in a year. African Americans still get nearly half, creating quandary for transit agency. Hey, how about you make transit free? Then you can stop fucking arresting people, and it's cheaper. Okay, and then here's what I wanted to get to. Okay. Cool. And this is from uh, at Alice Avizandam. 
A-L-I-S, excuse me, A-L-I-C-E-A-V-I-Z-A-N-D-U-M. And this person says, communists, the first line, because someone was saying how the line of the poem was like the, the, the first they came for the socialists, but that's not true. And communists, the first, the line is first they came for the communists, but everyone thinks it's the socialists because the Reagan administration made the Holocaust Memorial Museum change it before they let them engrave it there. So holy shit, I didn't know that. That's fucked up and also not surprising given the damage that Reagan did in California and in the country and just it's just so fucked up okay so I did want to end on that uh, yeah okay all right so I think that's a good place to end it's 145 I'm gonna play some more music and take Sparrow out for another little walk thanks again so much for listening really appreciate it thanks to all the folks who have donated throughout the years um, it means a lot and if you like this show and want to tell a friend or someone you know, please, that's great. Again, not some, we do have a Facebook page. I haven't been on Facebook for a while, as I mentioned. So you can follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And uh, yeah, always look forward to interviewing and talking with community organizers, activists, and artists. So please do get in touch. Uh, Twitter's probably the best way to at this moment. And uh, thanks for listening. And thanks for all the folks out there um, and ancestors and folks in the past who have worked so hard just to to get to where we are today. And even though there's so many things that seem really terrifying right now, there's still so many folks out there doing a lot of really incredible work and incredible organizing. So big thank you, deep thank you. And um, I don't think Sparrow has any any words that she wants to say. Oh, cutie. Okay, I'm gonna play. Oop. I'm gonna get up, play some music. Super relaxed today. Having uh, animals really does help uh, calm one down. Here's some more Ravi Shankar from the Chants of India album. And uh, we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everybody.
spiritual psychology with Renee McKenna. I'm a therapist and healer here in San Francisco. And if you want real change on a soul level, you've come to the right place. start (laughs) so do you introduce yourself in the beginning yeah so welcome to scotch talks podcast this is your host scotch um with us today is a good friend of mine renee mckenna hi scott hey welcome happy to be here yeah happy to have you (laughs) um i'm not sure what to talk about where to start um well we were just talking about intentions right yes so, and I have a lot of areas of my life, and I think that the easiest way to tie them all together is through this intention-setting work that I did years ago through this book called The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. It's by Stephen Covey, and um, it's one of the most powerful spiritual books that I know written in the guise of a business literature. Mm-hmm. It's really um, amazing. And one of the exercises in that book is to write a personal mission statement. And I've had the opportunity to start quite a few businesses, many of which have failed. And um, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and it's nice to start a mission, to have a mission statement in when you have an organization, because mm-hmm. then you can kind of determine the actions that you're going to take, and you can run them against the mission statement, because the mission statement doesn't change. It's kind of like the core, like why the intention, right? Mm-hmm. And so, Kobe suggests that you write a personal mission statement, and which is like an intention. And so my mission statement that came out of that work was to use all of my gifts and talents for the benefit of the most people and myself. Actually, originally, it wasn't in myself. In the last few years, I've added myself into that, um, which feels really important. Can you just say that one more time? Using all of my gifts and talents for the benefit of the most people and myself. Okay. And do you go into every single situation with that in mind? Do you bring that up? I wish that I was conscious enough to think (laughs) about it all the time. Although on a regular basis, I do think about it. And it has become kind of a working part of who I am as a person now. Mm -hmm. And well, I mean, it, it fits with my personality because I'm a very extroverted group crowd kind of person. I'm Mm. a service oriented person. I love to do stuff for other people. Um, I've, you know, the pathological side of that is that I'm a codependent and I can care more about caring for other people than I do for myself. Mm. But 
you know, the, the healthy, I think, um, the higher resonance of that is that I can do a lot of good in the world. Mm. And so, and adding myself into the equation actually cancels out the codependent piece, the pathological piece, because if I'm involved, if it's just all about you, it's a way to escape myself. Mm. But if I include myself in the equation, then the equation tends to be more balanced. Yeah. Is my experience. Nice. So, I mean, I, you know me, I can just talk. So (laughs) (laughs) how, um, how that play, how that has played out for me is, you know, I have had, I had, I like to call it the burden of potential and (laughs) right. And you know, I had a lot of different things that I was good at as a kid in school coming up Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I, I was good at art. I, um, was good at science. I got the highest chemistry mark and as a senior in high school in my, in my town, which was a pretty big town. Um, I'm really good with people. I was in student government. I was president of my senior class. And, and so there was a lot of variant ways I could go. Did I want to become someone in the medical community or in, in environmental science? Did I want to become a politician? Did I want to be an artist? I, I loved literature. I, I actually became an English major in college. So the hard thing for me, you know, my parents told me, you can be anything you want. But the hard thing was like, I had so many fucking things that I possibly could have done. I couldn't make up my mind. <laughs> yeah. Right. So after high school, I took a gap year and went and worked in a factory because I didn't know what to do. What? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. So... Um, which was really, it was a really instructive experience. It was a really instructive experience on a lot of levels because, so the company that I worked for was particular, it was a Jewish owned company, um, a conservative Jewish owned company. And the two men who had started the company had tattoos from the Holocaust on their arms. They escaped the camps um, at the age of 20 and came to America and started a business. Wow. And most of the people who worked there were Jewish immigrants. It was kind of like the UN. It was very interesting. Yeah, all the people that worked in the office, uh, I mean, eventually they all spoke English. They all spoke Yiddish, which was how they connected with each other at at the conservative temple. And... Um, so there was people from Poland and there was people from Germany and there was people from, so they were from all over the world. And, um, it was interesting cause the, the, the production, all the people in the production department were from Puerto Rico and all the people down in the shipping department were all from the Philippines. Oh, and, wow. um, yeah, it was interesting. And I was the Goyam that worked at front. I was the girl, the white girl, the non-Jewish girl, the Goyam. Um, that worked <laughs> girl he would call me girl call that man <laughs> so um, yeah it was a really it was a really really interesting experience to work for you know they all kept kosher and we kept the Jewish holidays and um, wow. yeah it was a super dysfunctional family business but uh, <laughs> but I learned a lot about Judaism and a lot about and a lot about that I didn't want to work in a factory for four dollars an hour for the rest of my life $4 and it motivated an me to go yeah when I get a raise I went to 425 whoa wow of course this was a long time ago <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm gonna be 55 in a couple minutes so this was in 1983 way before you were born <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway um we get off on that I don't know how we get off on that but um <laughs> So 
we were talking, I know this is an art podcast mm-hmm. at its essence, right? At its essence, yes. At its essence, it's about art. Oh, I was talking about all the different things I did in school. So, funny, we were just talking to somebody about this the other day. Part of the reason I didn't go to art school was because there were people that were better artists than me. Really, I mean, I had, I was very lucky. I had this fabulous high school that I went to in Weymouth, Mass, and it was super progressive. And I get to take art. I was an art major mm. and an English major. I got to take art um, every day from eighth grade to twelfth grade with a fabulous art teacher, and then uh, and I took two literature classes at least every day. It was it was a brilliant wow. arts education, and but um, you know my fragile ego at the time. Um, you know, there were kids that were, I quote, quote unquote, like better artists than me. And so, I mean, I had a lot of things I could tell you about why I didn't want to go to art school. Oh, well, I don't want to make it a hobby and I you don't want to make it into a job. I might not like, it was crap. Really. I was afraid <laughs> that there was people better than me, which was really has, I think it's a problem for a lot of people. You know, yeah. we, we feel like we aren't good enough as we are. Yeah. And so, and, and really of essence, like that's what my intention I think points to for me. And is that it's not about comparing myself to other people or the gifts and talents that I have. We all have gifts and talents. Everyone has gifts and talents. And finding what those are and being willing to bring the fullest expression of them into the world, I think, is our work as a human. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, my work as a therapist um, and a psychologist and a spiritual teacher and a shaman and a healer and all the other things that I do is really to help remove the blocks that people have to their authentic self. Mm. And, and all those gifts and talents that we have. Because really, it's only in bringing those forward that we find the fulfillment and the happiness and the peace and the joy that we all seek. And, but, you know, I like, Will Smith says, God put everything good on the other side of fear. Um, <laughs> and the fear is usually about fears of our own inadequacy mm. in comparison to our idea of who we think other people are. Generally, I think yep. most people suffer from that. Um, I know I still do. You know, I'm I'm just finishing up my first book. Should hopefully be out in a month. It's going to be called Allies and Demons. In a month? It's my what? goal. It'll be out in a month on Amazon. Wow. Allies and Demons. You can find it at ReneeMcKenna.com. And and um, you know, I was I've been reading some other you know psychology spiritual literature because it's the work i do is called spiritual psychology and it's a blend of hypnotherapy and buddhism and shamanism and the best i think of western psychology it's a really potent elixir for healing and transformation for me and for the, hopefully for those i work for <laughs> um but you know I've, i was i was actually reading some stuff this morning and, and i still find myself like oh like this writing is so good it's so clear and to the point and deep and and i feel that my own work you know is inadequate in comparison to that and i'm working very closely with an editor she holds my hand every day as we write because i just can't <laughs> do it by myself i finally realized which is fine i can ask for help and uh you know and so we just had this talk this morning that you know i have a special thing that comes through me Mm-hmm. That comes through Renee Lavalley McKenna, the age I am, the experience I've had, the the voice, you know, my Boston accent, my <laughs> fuck you attitude, whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, and that 
that's what's supposed to come through me. Mm -hmm. And, and I have to trust that that's my gift to the world and that that's good enough. It, it isn't about comparing that I'm not as good as the path work of self transformation <clears throat> or Stephen Covey or Scott Peck or, you know, whoever the other people that I admire their writing is it, it's gotta, I have to have the courage to be myself. In fact, my intention recently is um, for myself, it's more of a goal actually, is I want to become fearless. Fearless. I want to become fearless. How? I really do. I don't know how you become fearless, but I want to do it. I feel like I fear. I feel like fear is always there, but it's just cutting off that part of you that wants to make excuses, right? And then like another part just makes you do it or walks you or runs you through the fear. Well, fear really, I think, is a boogeyman for the most part. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> especially, you know, when I turned 50, a couple, five years ago, I took a retreat in New Mexico. I went to the desert. I love the desert. And I, I find the desert kind of like, there's, a, there's an openness in the space in being able to see for 40 miles and the sparseness of the landscape that just kind of clears away the details that get in the way of life. And, uh, yep. and what I felt really clearly, two things. I mean, that, that's when it, it became, the first thing was it became very clear to me that I'm here to be myself. Mm. I'm not here to be what you want me to be or what my mother wanted me to be or what society wants me to be. Like, my job is to be me. There's only one of me, and I'm going to die. And that was the second thing that happened was that at 50, I could really see the horizon line. Like, you know, at best, I get another 50, and the last 10 or 15 of those are probably going to be crap, right? So, <laughs> so I got maybe 35, and I have not done the things that I want to do in this life. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of great things, but, like, I haven't done the thing that I feel like really pushed myself to do the thing, which is what this book is the start of that to really be willing to push myself to the edge, to be willing to face my fears and outgrow them. And what's the fear? Fear of failure? Fear of success? Fear of dying? Fear of getting my feelings hurt? Like, whatever. I've already failed. I've already succeeded. I've already had my feelings hurt. I haven't died yet. Hopefully <laughs> I only do that once. But, you know, I've already lived through all that stuff. What am I afraid of? You know, what am I afraid of? I think now what's happened for me is that my biggest fear is that I'll get to the end of my life and give myself a thumbs down. That mm. I'll, I'll be on my deathbed and have not done the thing mm -hmm. and be disappointed with myself. And that really is my biggest fear. That is a bigger fear than whether people like me or not or whether I get my feelings hurt or a bad rating on Amazon or whatever, whatever happens. Um, but there's a, but there continues to be a lot of growth to be able to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, was that just when you were in Mexico? Like you had that realization or have you, cause since I've known you for this past year, like you've always just been Renee, like totally and completely yourself. Like, were you never not like that? Uh, I think in the context that we know each other, no, I think in the context that we know each other, which is personal growth work and, and a lot of spiritual work and, uh -huh. um, and it's places of great vulnerability. No, I think I've always been, I think that's been my place, my core place of self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I feel so grateful to have 
for most of my life had communities of people who are doing the same thing, who were trying to grow and be the best version of themselves they can be, and really deeply looking at their flaws and their fears and their frailties and, and, and trying to work through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's been modeled to me, and now I know I'm a model for that, just as part of a larger community. So I, I feel super grateful for that. But in other contexts of my life, so you know, I use the book as an example, so I hired somebody, um, I spent, well, I'll just say how it happened. You know, I went on, uh, I went on a, a trip traveling. I was just thinking about it on the way here. Traveling is a, is a clear the deck place. Yep. I mean, even, never mind the desert. Um, I'm actually planning a trip in a couple of months for the same reason. When I get out of my regular routine and I get into a new place, I'm there with fresh eyes. I'm totally in the moment. I know I might never come back here. It's Tuesday at one o'clock. Like, whoa, what happens in Belgium at Tuesday at one? Like, I'm like on it, right? <laughs> and and when I come back to my regular life, like I feel like it brings up in some ways, my, my best version of myself, yeah. super present, super excited, engaged with what's happening, people, places, things. Uh-huh. And then I get back into my routine life and all the things that don't support that become painfully obvious. Uh-huh. Like it feels, if it feels like I have to like squish myself back down into the box of my life, I have often had radical, cha- made radical changes to my life after taking a big trip. I've left relationships, I've quit jobs, I've moved, um, realizing that having had that experience for a week or two or three of my, of my kind of optimal way of living, I want to live that now. Mm-hmm. And we get choices, we can. If, you know, if I'm unhappy, I, I need to make some changes. There's nobody else to blame for that. So, um, so what happened when we got back from this trip, we went to Europe, I took my kids, I have two kids, and... Um, and I took my kids, we went to five countries in, in 17 days. It was an awesome trip. And um, and so I get back and I remember it was a day like today, we're in San Francisco, it's a beautiful clear day and, and we live near the ocean and I was out on my deck and I was looking at the ocean and my beautiful house and I have, I have another house in the East Bay. I have two houses, two kids, two dogs, two trucks. I get two of fucking everything. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm miserable. Like I, mm. I felt this like almost suicidal feeling like I don't like my life and and I had you know the work I do is very visual uses the active imagination a lot as a way as a bridge between uh, the outer world and the inner world between the world of spirit and the non-physical realities of our own truth of our emotions of of greater consciousness um, and bringing those into our own little brain using for me it's very visual different people have different ways so i often have images happen to me and um work a lot with archetypes and guides and teachers and angels and all kinds of different things and um and so as i was sitting there and i was on the phone with somebody like why do i want to die um (laughs) something's wrong here what do i need to change and this image of myself at the end of my life this image of myself as an old person Mm. came like very clear, I can still feel it. She's over here, she's on the right. She's happy with me right now. But she, and she was like, girl, you can either do the thing and get a thumbs up, or you cannot do the thing and get a thumbs down. And like, you know, at the end of the day, at the end, when I'm on my deathbed, I don't get a second chance to be Renee McKenna doing this. And just to be clear, what is the thing? So the thing at that point was, so they felt like um, two choices one was my profession and one was my personal life. And there was, 
Um, definitely limitations happening in both. I've been doing the therapy work that I do for a long time. But, you know, I have a little home office. I certainly am not using all my gifts and talents. And the other was my personal life and my home and my marriage. And so I was like, do I write my book or do I leave my husband? <laughs> and so I was like, I'm going to write the book first. <laughs> Subsequently, I actually have left my husband, but <laughs> there's an order of operations apparently. And so, so writing the book came first. So I, um, you know, I, it's an interactive universe. I believe in, in higher good. And I believe that there are, uh, there's a whole realm of grace that's there to support our highest good. And so I started to talk about it. I started to do some research. I have a friend who works in publishing. And I'll just say within two weeks, I had a writing support group and I had a ghost writer. And mm. I had a talk with him. Because at that point, I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. I had kind of been trying. I had like 25 starts of writing this book. I just couldn't do it by myself. And he said to me, um, okay, so we can probably do six months, six, or, six to eight months. And, um, and this is how much I charge. And I had exactly that amount of money in my bank account. It was all my savings. Uh -huh. It was every penny of my savings, but I had exactly the amount. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm not a huge signs and symbols person, but maybe I am. You know, I was like, all right. <laughs> so I wrote the big fat check and we spent eight months writing the book and I got a 269 page transcript at the end that was technically publishable and I hated it. I couldn't even read it. I couldn't even look at it. I read the first chapter and I was like, oh my God, I would never read this book. Did you just think that that was maybe just you? No. Or did you run it by other people? No, I didn't show anyone. <laughs> I said, if I don't love this book, I can't put it out. Mm. And, and so... I'm bringing this back to what the, what the question was. So in the process of writing that book, which is, it's basically the, it was basically like the, the core text of, it's the book I have now, only the book, the allies and demons is, is, um, uh, much more condensed. And mm -hmm. I think, um, I think it's going to be shorter and more put it to the point. But one of the things when you're writing, and I think it happens all the time unconsciously when we're out is the idea of how am I presenting myself? to mm. people, right? How am I presenting myself? And in my work, we talk a lot about having a mask, a social mask, a sexual mask, a friendship mask, a family mask, like that we put on these different masks to be who we think other people want us to be. Mm. Think who we, or even our own idealized self-image of who we think we are, who we think we want to be, that may not be actually that connected with who, what's true, depending on how unconscious and how, that's a bummer. The further you are away from your authentic self, the more of a bummer it is, really. But anyway, the way the book was written, uh, we had, you know, I was a little bit up in the air about it, but the way the book was written was from this place of authority. Like, Renee Bacchetta, therapist for 30 years, speaks to you from, you know, and I hate <laughs> that, um, that idea, you know, there's a hierarchy, it's like, I'm well and you're sick or yeah. I'm the doctor and you're the patient and and that's crap like I'm a human I'm more fucked up than most people I know like I'm still doing <laughs> this work I get a lot of bags I'm still unpacking um, I have a tremendous amount of experience and tremendous transformation and healing has happened for me so I, I know that I am an example but um, but you know there was this question do I swear 
do, how do I dress? Like, do I put on the white coat like they do on, on the commercial for Excedrin PM and pretend <laughs> like I'm a doctor and tell you that this is my authoritative opinion? People are very influenced by that stuff, yeah, right? Um, or do I wear my like heavy metal T-shirt and like <laughs> say the F word like I was raised in Boston? And, and um, you know, I was thinking, oh, do I get this little mole taken off my face? Do I try to lose my accent? Like, do I try to become a more acceptable version of myself? Mm. That was the question. And, and the way that book was written, all 269 pages of it were from a mask. Mm. And so, you know, I've spent the last year rewriting it in my own authentic voice. And so, so I will tell you that, that the writing of that book in that way did come from some experience. Um, you know, stepping, I had an opportunity in January of 2017 to step out in a very public way. Um, you know, I, I was lead of Women's March, San Francisco, uh-huh. and there was a lot of things that went down in that process. Um, it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had, and I'm so grateful to have been able to be a part of facilitating that amazing event that ended up being, of course, a worldwide event for like Jeez. seven million people. Yeah. But, um, but there was also when you put yourself, when as a privileged white woman, putting myself out as the face of an event that it stands for social justice. Um, there was some really venomous attacks on me just as a figurehead uh-huh. um, that were quite terrifying and, and upsetting um, from different communities um, and demographics in the Bay Area who, who have been disenfranchised and victimized and brutalized for centuries, and I was a person that they could shoot at. And so, mm-hmm. so there was this out of that experience uh, was the idea, well, like, how do I, if I'm going to really step out in a public way, how do I do that in a safe way? How do I do that? How do I do that? Like, do I be an authority? Do I, like, what's the, so it felt almost like a political thing. And mm. I mean, since, so it's been a lot of contemplation about that, about my, my package, my brand, like, who am I going to be? And, um, you know, happy to report that uh, the brand is just going to be me <laughs> <laughs> now. And 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 how I protect myself is to come from a place of truth and compassion. How does a uh, one go about finding their authentic self? So that's a big question. It's a big question. I I, I have a lot of answers for that question. I mean, I think. I think really it, the authentic self is always here, right here where we are. And the, the easiest direct, fastest direct route is really just to sit quietly with yourself mm. and to observe what's happening. Um, I like, you know, you were asking me a little bit early about writing stuff down. Like I, I, I like to think about the chakra energy systems if people aren't familiar with that, so in, in Chinese medicine and a lot of Eastern medicine, there's like different ideas of different chakras. So there's one at the top of our head, one between our eyebrows, one at our throat, our heart, one at our solar plexus, one just below our belly button, and one at the base of our spine. And each of them has a slightly different um, personality or has, has a different 
attribute holds different intentions in the world and um, not just in our body but our body the, those parts of our body are all metaphors for different ways of being in the world and so most of us spend most of our time in our head mm-hmm. right most of our time is spent in our head and so and it's a valid place right there's a val <laughs> there is a lot and that's pretty much the place between your eyebrows right like that's there is a place um, but to open up spiritually like how do I feel spiritually what does that even mean to me I think it's about asking questions mm. and then listening for the answer that comes from within us um, you know my my throat is my voice um, what do I have to say to myself to other people am I full of self-hatred and criticism and judgment and fear am I full of love and compassion and forgiveness and inspiration or wisdom mm. um, what's happening in my heart like if I really bring my awareness down into my chest how am I feeling um, it's really about discovery like how do we find it is really about like finding our authentic self I think it's masked for most of most of us and to have that inquiry like how am I actually feeling in my heart I know I didn't have access to my heart for a really long time it was closed it just wasn't safe to be there like physically actually I did stuff in yoga to try to open it and mm. um, what's happening in our gut in our belly that's where a lot of people feel their anxieties their fears their guilt their shame um, and you know you drop further down like below your belly button that's the area of creativity I mean you may not feel it but what is your inspiration what inspires you what what is your creative bent what what is the thing that you bring and make in the world? And it doesn't have to be physical art. Mm -hmm. Some people, their creativity is, is loving children. Some people, their creativity is to facilitate safety in groups. Some people's creativity is growing plants. Um, you know, I mean, there's, or making food. I mean, those are kind of obviously creative, I think, but, but maybe not. Maybe people don't think of those as art. You know, people might limit it just to a two-dimensional thing that goes on the wall or a three-dimensional thing that sits on a desk. Um, so, so I think that finding the authentic self comes from, from continued inquiry into the self. And it's really, because I personally believe we are all connected with the divine, with this greater oneness, Atman, whatever you want to call it, um, life force, it's a verb. And we're all connected with it. And so as we plumb deeper into ourself, it really is a bottomless pit. It, I don't think it's a pit. It's, pit's bad. But, <laughs> um, it's a bottom. It's a bottomless. It's an endless. It's an infinite <laughs> adventure um, of who, what is our authentic self and what's it tied to and what can come through that. So it's about questions. And if the answers to those questions are, I don't know, then you need to spend more time sitting because the answers, the answers are there. Mm. Does that answer your question? Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to have to sit with that question. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. You want to talk about art? I guess. We'll talk about art. So, I mean, yeah. Well, I like to tell my art stories funny. You know, I, um, <laughs> so I talked about, you know, high school. I didn't go to art school. And, uh, and I, one of the things that I'm a really good copyist. And again, I had this attitude of like other people's art is better than mine. Mm -hmm. But I like it when people say, ooh, that's really good. 
I, that mm. was most of my art was done with that in mind of mm. getting your approval of you to tell me that it was good. And then that was some kind of affirmation of me as a person somehow. But so I really didn't do much art. I certainly didn't have my own voice as an artist. Um, and I took a couple art classes in college and you know, one really instructive moment, I might've already told you the story. Um, we were doing a realistic drawing. It was actually a complicated piece of machinery. We were all drawing it from different perspectives. And, and the teacher came up to me after and he said, he looked at my drawing and he said, it's technically very good, but it's not art. And I knew right then what he was talking about. I knew it. It was, some people might think he was mean. <laughs> I was kind of like mean teachers, actually. They tell <laughs> the truth. And, um, but I knew what he meant. It was technically good, but it, there was no heart connected with it. There was no essence of me connected with it. It was really done so that he would say, that's really good. Mm. It wasn't me coming out on the paper. And so it was, a, it was a pivotal moment for me as an artist. And I didn't do art for a really long time. A really long time. And even up to that point, most of the art that I had done, it would be for gifts for people. And I would mostly copy stuff that I liked. I would copy other people's artwork and give it as a, as a gift mm -hmm. to someone. And I had these kids and we started to go to this kind of down and dirty preschool. And they always put me on the art table with the two to four year olds. And it was so amazing, you know, and it was the kind of place where this wasn't about creating projects. They would just throw a bunch of like, like they would throw tin foil and glitter and glue and paint on the table. And then the kids could like do whatever they wanted with uh -huh. it kind of a stuff. There was always just, they would throw different materials down and they, sometimes they'd have an idea, but the kids could make whatever they want. So I was with all these kids just like totally psyched to like put glitter all over the left side of their <laughs> face and paint their hair and like make these complicated things that look like poo and then and then they tell you well like this was a giraffe and he has a spaceship and then the shark ate his toes and then the dog came and you know and they had these whole like elaborate internal processes that was coming out in this external messes that the kids were making with these beautiful colors it's all about process and so much fun and it opened up it opened up this creativity artistic part of me that I, you know, I have no memory of it being open. It probably was when I was very little, but, um, my parents were pretty uptight. So, you know, I, anyway, and I got this, someone sent me a video. I don't know who, and I still show it to people all the time. It's called prodigy of color. It's about this girl, Aaliyah, Aaliyah. Oh, I should know her last name. I can't think of it. And, um, it's a video of her when she was four, and she has artist parents there from Australia, and um, and she is a gifted artist. She's actually still, she's I think she's 12 now. She's a quite quite well-known artist. Oh, wow. Yeah, she just, anyway, it's about a 15-minute video, and it changed my world. I watched this little girl, like, pour paint and drop stuff into the paint and dance around these huge canvases, and... And tell those stories like the 